0: You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of, our, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Our God and Father, you are exceedingly merciful, and we're so grateful for who you are and for how you have demonstrated your mercy to us through the journey of this life in this world. We're so grateful for what you have stored up for us in the ages to come, lavishing upon us blessings that we can't even comprehend, much less describe. We're so grateful, Lord, for who you are and for what you've done through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's simply no way we can understand it. There's simply no way we can take it all in. There is simply no way we could praise your name in a way that's fitting uh, to, to what you have accomplished and to who you are. But I pray this morning, Lord, that you'd help us to journey a little bit farther down the road of understanding. I pray that you'd open our eyes a little bit more. I pray that you'd expand the capacity of our hearts a little bit more. I pray that you'd expand our desire to praise your name a little bit more this morning. Oh, Father, show us your great mercy that we might praise your great name. And for how you will work in us and through us in this passage today, we give you our thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As you may remember, I did preach to you several times from Hebrews 11, the last few times that I've been with you, and we focus there on the subject of faith. And the main things that I shared with you is that faith is trusting in the faithfulness of God. God is infinitely and utterly faithful. He will never fail. And when He says something, He means it. When He promises something, He is going to accomplish it. And so faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a force. Faith is trusting that God is going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. And what people of faith find over time is that God is faithful. And all this great cloud of witnesses that our brother just read for us about, what they're shouting to us is that God will do it. God will accomplish everything he said. So press on, trust him, walk with him. I want to stay focused today on the subject of faith with you, but here in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9, where Peter teaches us something about how God births and sustains and nurtures and matures our faith. And I'll tell you from the outset what my aim in this message is. I want us to see what Peter sees so that we'll say what Peter says in verse 3 from the depths of our hearts. When he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, beloved, he means it. He feels this profoundly, and he's saying it with passion. And I just want to help us walk a little bit farther down the road so that we'll say that along with him today. So let's begin by looking briefly at verses 1 and 2. Peter begins by introducing himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I don't think, in fact, I'm certain that his heart here was not to assert his own authority and essentially say to the church, hey, I'm a big shot, and you need to listen to what I have to say. I think what he was saying is that Jesus called me to this office. Jesus has vested me with an authority. Jesus has has invested wisdom in me over decades of time. And he he has called me to love and feed his people. And I'm humble before the Lord in that I'm willing to grasp the position that he's given to me. But I know who I am before the Lord. I am a servant of his people. And beloved, I, I think this is what godly authority looks like. Godly authority embraces the calling that Jesus has on our lives, but then we use that authority for the good of the people and the glory of God. And this is Peter's heart. And having a humble heart before the Lord, I believe that our brother Peter gained eyes to see something about the people of God. And so he addressed the people of God in in a very unique way. I think this is the only time in the New Testament that the believers are, are addressed exactly this way, where he calls us the elect exiles of the dispersion. That was not a common way of talking to Christians in those days, and it's certainly not common among us today. I don't think I've ever heard a, a preacher get up and say, good morning, elect exiles of the dispersion. It's not language that's immediately obvious to us what it means, but oh, is it ever profound. The word elect simply means to be called out, and what a, what a privilege it is to be called by name, by the God of such great mercy and into his family. I remember who I was before I was in Jesus. I did not grow up in the church. I I became a severe drug addict when I was 11 and 12 years old. And I was messed up badly until I was 20 when Jesus called me out of the world. I remember who I was before God, uh, before I knew God in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just can't believe that he elected me, called me by name. It's an unbelievable privilege to know Jesus My wife grew up believing in Christ. She grew up in a difficult family situation, but she's always known Jesus. She's always walked with Jesus. And it took the same amount of power to elect her as it did to elect me. It doesn't matter what our background is. It is a miracle. It is amazing that God has elected us and brought us to himself. Amen. It's amazing that we're his children. And then because we're his children, we're called exiles, which just simply means to be sojourners in this world. We're, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We have citizenships in this country and that country, but primarily we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And no matter how great our earthly citizenships are, they're just going to fade away, right? The Apostle Paul had Roman citizenship. In those days, Rome was the United States of the world. It was the dominant country of the world, but that country faded away, and so did his citizenship. But his citizenship in the kingdom of God never faded away. It will never fade away, and that's true for us too. We are exiles in this world, sort of citizens of the United States, but so much more citizens of the kingdom of God. We are sojourners here. And then we are of the dispersion, Peter says. This word is so interesting. It's so informative to me. The word actually refers to the sowing of seeds by a sower. So it's not just this idea that things are just sort of scattered to the wind. The picture here is of a farmer who is deliberately sowing seeds. But in this case, God is the sower and his people are the seeds. And he's put each and every one of us exactly where he wants us to be at the exact right time that we might bear fruit for his glory and our joy and the salvation of the nations. Isn't that awesome? You're not just randomly where you are. Sometimes life feels that way, but it's not true. Before God, he has called us to himself. He has made us exiles in this world, yes, but he put us in particular places at particular times for his purposes. And oh, what a joy it is for us to see that. I just want us to understand here this morning, beloved, that Peter didn't just try to find some words to say like geez how could i sound unique and different from the apostle paul like in the way that i addressed the church he wasn't trying to be creative he was trying to express something that god had allowed him to see about the reality of who we actually are in the world we are elect exiles who have been deliberately planted in the soil of this world by our god for the purposes of our god and oh how our joy will increase as we see that And also, just notice at the end of these couple verses, the glory of the fact that this is a Trinitarian work. We become elect exiles of the dispersion by the foreknowledge of God our Father, which, from what I understand, is pretty precise, pretty great, pretty perfect. By the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that calls us out of the world and sets us apart for the purposes of God and for the sprinkling of Jesus' blood for the salvation we get through his life and death and burial and resurrection and for obedience to Jesus Christ he gladly laid down his life for the Father that we might have eternal life and then learn the joy of being obedient to the God who has sown us in the world oh, what a way to start a letter and then he says, with all that in mind he just says, again, not throw away words May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And to that I say, amen. May the grace of God and the peace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ be multiplied over and over and over again. Beloved, I hope you understand that Peter's not just writing as a man before us, he's writing as a worshipful man who's being used by the Lord Jesus Christ to speak to his church. All of these words are very meaningful And they're trying to shape in us a a sort of identity, a a, a way of of thinking about ourselves before the Lord and before others in the world. And now, knowing what he has to say in verses 3 and 9, Peter begins in verse 3, as I said a moment ago, with a very deep, heartfelt expression of praise when he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Years ago, I taught carefully through Ephesians, and it was almost the exact same phrase that Paul said. So, look, Peter and Paul were pals. They were were brothers in Christ. They were fellow worshipers, fellow laborers in the world. They may have shared a common sentence, but I promise you, they both felt it to the depth of their hearts. They meant this phrase. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to help us understand a little bit of what was causing him to say that. First of all, Peter tells us that by his great mercy, God has saved us from the death that is the inescapable consequence of our sin against him. And he has caused us to be born again. We have not born ourselves again. God caused us to be born again to a living hope that cannot possibly die because it's rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ who overcame that great enemy of death. The vibrant expectation of the people of God is that God will bring to pass everything he has promised. Beloved, this is our living hope, because we know that he who promised is faithful. And how could God have better demonstrated his faithfulness to his people than to raise the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead? What what greater demonstration could he give to us? He prophesied these things centuries, in fact, millennia before they happened. And then in his good time, he brought them about. This is the greatest demonstration in the history of the world that our Father is faithful. Second, Peter tells us that our living hope, rooted in the resurrection of Jesus, is that we have and will receive from our Father an inheritance through the Lord Jesus Christ. And believe me when I say that this inheritance is beyond anything that we could possibly comprehend. I really mean that. I don't know, have any of you seen the, these new pictures that have come out? I don't remember what that new telescope is called. The new pictures of the universe that have come out, they've kind of been all over Facebook and such. It's stunning. I mean it's just unbelievable how many galaxies are shown in this little picture and they're saying that it's the, it's the width of a grain of sand of a look into the universe. It's unbelievable. I cannot take in the massiveness of the physical universe, how much less could we take in the greatness of the glory of God, right? So we're talking about this inheritance. I promise you it's way beyond anything that we can take in. It's really great. The primary reason I feel that and say that is because in Hebrews 1-2, we learn that Jesus has become the sole heir of everything that belongs to God the Father. And since he inherited everything that belongs to God the Father, while God the Father still lives, this makes Jesus equal to God. This means Jesus shares in everything that it means to be God. There's nothing you can think of that's under the control of God that is not also the possession of Jesus Christ. Then, by his great mercy, when we put our faith in Jesus, he causes us to be born again, and he causes us to share in the inheritance that rightfully and eternally belongs to Jesus. This is our living hope, friends. This is our living hope, that what belongs to Jesus by nature will come to belong to us by grace through faith. This is our hope. You know, life in this world can be hard. Things come and go. Possessions come and go. Properties come and go. The inheritance we have in Jesus Christ will not come and go. It will come and stay. This is our living hope. This is our living hope. We, of course, are not God or anything equal to God, but we are unbelievably uh, um, privileged objects of the mercy of God who would lavish such blessings upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ just look at what Peter says about the inheritance that God has granted to us. He wants us to understand the nature of it. He says three things. He says, first of all, that our inheritance is imperishable. And this means that it cannot possibly die because it's rooted in the one who was raised from the dead, right? If Jesus possesses the fullness of our inheritance and he killed death through his death, then our inheritance cannot possibly die, You know, if you wake up in the morning and look at your various investments that you have or your retirement account, that thing might go up and down. And these days it might go up and down radically. If there was a a chart there, we could see the nature of our inheritance in Jesus. It it wouldn't go up or down. It would be at full constantly all the time forever. It can't increase. It cannot decrease. It cannot die. It is imperishable. Amen? So many things in this life perish our inheritance in Jesus can and will never perish. Then Peter says that it's undefiled, which means that it's incorruptible. It's unstainable. It is perfectly and eternally pure. Sadly, over the last few years, we've heard stories of various ministries of prominent Christian leaders who it turns out were corrupt. Probably the one that broke my heart the most was Ravi Zacharias. I looked up to him for so many years. It absolutely broke my heart for weeks. I was driving around like, that could not be true. Like, there's no way this could happen. It's very sad when these things come out. But I'm here to tell you this morning that no matter what Christian leaders fall and no matter what Christian ministries are exposed, we are never going to awaken to the news that our inheritance has been corrupted in Christ. Never. Why? Because God cannot be corrupted. Jesus Christ cannot be corrupted. He himself is unstainable, And so our inheritance is also unstainable. Finally, our inheritance is also unfading. And I'm so glad Peter used this word. This is a a word that has to do with physical, visible beauty. It's a word that mainly uh, applies to flowers, the beauty of a flower. My wife loves plants. She loves flowers. In fact, it's an issue in our marriage because she loves them way more than I do. So there's all this stuff in our house all the time and I'm always pleading like, oh, Kim, enough is enough. And she's like, oh, just one more, just one more. And then she splits them and creates more and gives them away. It's, It's a great joy for her. It's a little bit of a challenge for me. But she loves, oh, she loves the beauty of a flower when it's in full bloom. This word is saying that of our inheritance, that our inheritance will bloom and the beauty of that blooming will never fade away, not for a second. It will never wilt. It will never die. It will come into the fullness of of, of its beauty and that beauty will remain forever and ever and ever and ever. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Our inheritance. Finally, as valuable as it is, is being kept and watched over and protected for us in the very presence of God, where death cannot kill, where sin and Satan cannot corrupt, and where the elements of this world cannot destroy. And even as our inheritance is being kept in God's presence, we ourselves, Peter tells us, are being protected by God's mighty power. And the word here is a military word, by the way, the word guarded. So imagine God is a great military figure. He doesn't need an army. He's greater than any army you could ever dream of anyway. God himself is guarding us by his power through our faith in him, through our trust in him, so that we will come to that great and final day when this inheritance becomes ours. Beloved, the God who is infinitely strong and trustworthy and faithful is constantly filling us with the desire and the ability to cling to him so that everything he's promised to us will one day belong to us through our Lord Jesus Christ as we await his precious promises, as we await the salvation that he has prepared for us in Jesus. And after, you know, having summarized a little bit of the nature of all that, I just want to ask you a question about God. Who would treat their enemies like this? You know, when you sinned against God, when you rebelled against God, whether like my wife, you grew up in the church or like me, you lived a life of great rebellion in the world, whatever the depth of your sin or the nature of your sin is, you were not just irritating to God. You became an enemy of God. Do you know that? You were absolutely cut off and separated from God. You were a a rebel of the state. You broke his heart. You broke the relationship between him and you. You were an enemy of God. Who treats their enemies like this? Who sends his only begotten son into the world to live a perfectly righteous life so that whoever believes in him is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and stands before God as as though they themselves are righteous? Who would do that? Well, God would do that. That's who. Who would send his only begotten son into the world to die a horrific death to pay the fullness of the penalty of the price of our sin so that when we put our faith in him, our sins are forgiven both now and forevermore. Past, present, future sins forgiven forever. No condemnation before the Lord in Jesus Christ. Amen. Who would do that? God would do that. Do you think of your enemies like that? Do you treat your enemies, your opponents like that? who would send their son into the world to be buried in a grave and three days later to be raised from death so that whoever puts their faith in him also overcomes death. And also, even though we'll experience a physical death on this earth, that will not be the final chapter in our lives. We will be raised to life again with him forever and ever. Who would do that? God would do that. And finally, who would cause their son sent into the world to be ascended from the earth and to be seated at his right hand so that whoever believes in him, this is taught in Ephesians 2, I'm not making this up, will be seated with him on that throne and rule and reign with him forever. Not because we become God, but because we become one with our Savior by the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Who would do that, beloved? Who would treat their enemies like that? Well, God would treat their enemies like that. And now, his enemies like that. Now that we've seen a little bit more, I think of what Peter saw. I pray that we can say what Peter said with more passion and awe in our hearts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just all abstract theological stuff, flowery language that we use in church. This is the reality for everybody who believes in Jesus who's been saved by grace through faith. So indeed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Heaven so elo- eloquently and so powerfully summarized our living hope in God. Peter now moves on to help us understand how God uses the daily realities of life in this world to fulfill his purposes. And I'm so glad that Peter did this. And he begins by saying that even as we rejoice in the great mercy of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we also grieve as we endure the various trials of this life. Friends, the Christian life is one of rejoicing and of grieving. And it's good for us to understand and accept this fact. Peter's gonna show us how God turns our grief into rejoicing. Grief won't last forever. But right now, grief is a part of life and it's good for us to understand this. I think sometimes Christians get the false idea that to be in Christ is just to be happy and feel happy and feel nothing but happiness constantly all the time. But I just don't think that's an accurate picture, biblically speaking, of what the Christian life is about. We rejoice and we grieve, but ultimately that grief is gonna turn into joy because of what God does with our grief and how God uses our grief. Grief will not have the final word, but it is part of life. And I'm so, so glad that Peter as a seasoned sufferer, as a seasoned man of faith, brought this up. This phrase, various trials, is an important one. It refers to the many different kinds of tests and temptations that we face as elect sojourners in this world. It includes things like relational stresses and strains, financial difficulties, car problems, which Kim and I seem to have our fair share of, short and long-term health issues, Business challenges, unemployment, strong storms that damage and destroy properties. Um, Struggles with sin that lasts just for a moment or over a long period of time. Struggles with our personality, things that are not necessarily sinful, but that aren't necessarily good, just things that we just can't seem to get over. I've been walking with Jesus since 1986, and there are parts of who I am and how I act that I just still wonder, like, will I ever get over this like how long oh lord how long oh lord will it take to change these patterns in me these various trials include spiritual warfare at personal and corporate levels opposition to the gospel from within the church and from without of the church persecution at home at work or wherever we are in the world specifically because of our love for jesus and our willingness to obey him in the public square I could go on, but I'll stop there because my aim in this part of the message is simply to help us see that when Peter refers to various trials, he has all sorts of things in mind. He has all sorts of the the various struggles and realities of this life in mind. And as an experienced and wise shepherd of the people of God, he wants us to know that he was grieved by these things. He didn't just go through these things. He was grieved by them and that we're going to be grieved too. Friends, it is normal for Christians to rejoice in the great mercy of God and to grieve at the realities of living in this world. That's normal Christianity. Sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Very important for us to understand that. However, having said that, as I said a minute ago, grief will not have the final word in our lives. It will not have the final word in our hearts because our God and Father uses the various trials of this life to give us perspective and to prove the value of what he's invested in us and also to prove the the, the power and permanence of who he is in our lives. So let me press into this a little bit. On the one hand, when we're dealing with things that are hard for us, and when we're downright suffering, as Kim and I have in the last few years, we've been through an unspeakable number of things in our lives. It seems at times that our trials are never going to come to an end. Sometimes it feels like we're going to be absolutely overcome with our grief. In the last three years, by God's grace, I never came to a single place where I, I questioned God and questioned why he had us going through all this stuff. That just wasn't part of my experience in this particular set of trials that we endured. But I'll tell you honestly, there were days that I wondered if I was going to survive it all. And I really mean that. Not that I felt that I, I was going to take my own life, but I just literally wondered, Will my heart st- stand up under all this stress. Am I going to make it? I, and I didn't know. I really didn't know. I really had no idea. Sometimes I wondered, is this just going to be our lot until the end of our lives? But Peter, as an old and seasoned sufferer, says that we're only gonna have to endure these trials for a little while. Do you notice that phrase there, verse six? A little while. Doesn't feel like a little while when it's happening always, does it? Especially when it's intense and especially when the trials are are enduring trials and not just one-time things. But in the perspective of the kingdom of God, I hope we'll have a heart to listen to our older brother here in Christ and understand it's just going to be a little while. Our afflictions, as hard as they feel, are light and momentary, as Paul says. In the, in the light and the perspective of our inheritance that we will have in Jesus forever, it's just going to last a little bit of time. Now, we might protest in our hearts. I mean, right now in public, you're going to say amen, of course. But maybe inside your heart you're going, yeah, right. Like you don't know my life. You don't know how hard my life has been. My life has been filled with suffering since I have memories to the present day. And that may well be. I would never want to minimize, first of all, the amount of suffering anybody's been through or the intensity of it. I don't understand your suffering any more than you understand mine. I I don't understand it. And I would never say that it's not hard and meaningful. I would never say that. Some people have a very long and hard road to walk through this life harder than others. But friends, all our suffering combined is nothing compared to the great mercy of God that's been lavished on us in Jesus Christ. That's just the truth. We can say both things. I love this about being a Christian. I can acknowledge life is hard. Life is painful. There's parts of life that I just shake my head and say, Lord, I don't understand. And I can also rejoice that God has redeemed me. I can also rejoice and say, I don't get it, but one day he's going to turn all this into glory. I know he will. We can say both things. That's what the Christian life looks like, beloved. One day God will turn our grief into rejoicing because it's all going to get put into perspective and we're going to get understanding. On the other hand, as difficult as various trials and temptations of life can be, in the end, they only serve to prove the power and permanence of what God has invested in us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read verses 6 and 7 with you again. Peter writes, In this, in what God has done for us, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That phrase, tested genuineness, implies that God uses the various tests and temptations of this life to serve only, to serve to prove the value of what He's invested in us because that phrase implies not that our trials make us stronger that phrase means that our trials prove how strong our hope in god is do you see the difference james does talk about in the passage that was read for us how our, our trials make us more steadfast there there is a sense in which trials make us stronger in the lord i'm not saying they don't what i'm saying is here that's not what peter is saying what Peter's saying here is that our trials prove how strong our living hope is. That's what he's up to here. I told Kim yesterday, you may remember that she broke her hip last fall. And so we went through about 12 weeks of going from her being completely immobile to being in a wheelchair, to being in a walker, to being in a cane, to being back walking. Now she's riding her bike with me and, and you know, I'm almost completely back to normal. Praise be to God. I told her last night that when you saw how I responded to your initial injury and you saw how I treated you, I spoiled that woman for months. I said, the reason that is, is not because I loved you anymore, because I did not love you more. That was a demonstration of how much I've loved you this whole time. It was, it was that, that challenge was an opportunity to demonstrate love. And that's what I'm saying here. What Peter's point is, is that the trials and tests and temptations of this life prove the strength of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. This reminds me of Hebrews 12. It seems like every part of the Bible reminds me some part of Hebrews because I love Hebrews so much. But there at the end of Hebrews 12, the author says that God will shake this world one more time so that what cannot possibly be shaken will remain. And then he tells us to be grateful that we've inherited a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see, one way that the God, that God shakes us and shakes the world is through the trials and tests of life. But mainly what he's up to is showing us that what you've inherited cannot be shaken. Your God cannot be shaken. The gospel cannot be shaken. Your inheritance cannot be shaken. Your living hope cannot be shaken. Amen? blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One way that God is using our trials is to say, look what can't be shaken. Just look, see. This is why Peter compares our faith to gold. I don't understand much about precious metals, but I know that one of the reasons gold is valuable is because it's not only beautiful, but it's durable. It can, it can endure intense heat and not perish. But there does come a point where if you apply the right amount of heat for the right amount of time, gold will melt away and and, and disappear and cease to exist. What Peter is saying is that your faith is more valuable than gold because that can't happen to genuine faith. Why? Because your faith isn't ultimately about you, it's about the God in whom you're trusting. Tell me what fire could melt God away? What trial could shake God away? You, You can't do it, right? your faith is unbelievably valuable because the one in whom you're trusting is infinitely valuable. And all the trials of this life are doing is showing you, absolutely showing you, that your living hope cannot die, it cannot be corrupted, it cannot fade in beauty. This is why our grief, as intense and overwhelming as it can be at times, will eventually transform into rejoicing. I'm not saying that every single moment we feel the rejoicing, but I am saying that eventually our grief will transform into rejoicing, or to use that term from the Old Testament, we'll sow in tears, but we're going to reap in what? In joy, right? Sow in tears, reap in joy, because God is showing us the power and permanence of his presence in our lives through the various trials of this life. And as if all that wasn't enough, Peter then adds that after the genuineness of our faith has been tested in this world, we're going to receive praise, glory, and honor from God the Father when he looks at each and all of us and says words something like this, I am your God and you are my people. I am your Father. You are my child. You by name are my child. Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into your master's happiness. This is what it means to receive praise and glory and honor from God. And of course, we know that when that sacred day comes and we hear those stunning words and understand the implication for our eternity of those words, we're going to join the 24 elders and the four living creatures. We're going to fall to our face before the Lord and cast any crown that we have on our heads before His feet and say, no, Lord, You alone are worthy of praise and glory and honor. This is a God who's just stunning and impossible to take in. That he would heap praise and glory and honor upon children that are just the objects of his mercy. What an unbelievable God this is. Welcome to your reality. Welcome to your eternity. Welcome to what it means to be a child of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And while the moment... When we see him face to face, is glorious, really beyond imagination. It's not so far off that we can't taste it now. And I think that's really the point of verses eight and nine here in closing. Peter says, look, you've never seen him. John said it as well. No one's ever actually physically seen him, but you truly love him. You truly love him. I've said often over the years that when I see Jesus face to face, I'm definitely gonna be stunned. I know that. I don't know, I don't understand it, but I know I'll be stunned. But one thing I know, I won't be looking at a stranger. That, that I know. It's going to feel maybe strange in a moment, but in a heartbeat, I'm going to know I'm not looking at a stranger. I'm looking at a, a, a Savior that I have loved with all my heart for all these years because of His grace at work in my life. We have not seen Him, but we truly love Him. Beloved, that's a foretaste of what's coming. How in the world could we continue to love Jesus given everything that's happening in the world right now, right? Tell me something. When you're pumping your gas tank full right now, <laughs> and you're watching it ka ching, ka ching, ka ching, ka ching, like, oh, Jesus, how could you really, really love God? Well, because our hope's not in gas prices going up or down. I would love it if they'd come down, but my hope's not there. My hope's in Christ, right? And he says, we're not now presently seeing him. We're not going to see him in the rest of this age but we believe in him, we truly trust in him. And our souls are filled with a joy that is inexpressible. You can't really explain it, but it's filled with glory. It's absolutely inexpressible, but it's absolutely filled with glory. Kim and I, as we've endured so many things over the last few years at various points along the way, we would just look at each other and one set of words or another just say, I have the strangest joy right now. Like when people in our family were dying left and right, we had three very people, very, very close to us, precious to us, die within about 12 days, 13 days of each other. Different causes, different things. And that was just one small piece of a whole larger puzzle of things that we endured. And in the midst of the heat of that fire and grief, It was just the strangest joy that I felt that I really don't know how to explain to you except to say what I said before, that in the midst of people dying and so many things in life permanently falling away, going away forever and ever as far as life on this earth goes, I knew for a fact that God was right there with me. I knew that my faith in Him was real. I knew that his presence was not going to leave. The Lord said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Well, that's proven when the chips are down, right? And so in the midst of the sufferings of this life, there is a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Again, these aren't just flowery words. I think Peter's trying to strain for words to explain what he feels in his heart. We rejoice and we grieve, but even in the midst of our grief, we rejoice because we know that God ultimately will overcome it all. And I believe that the joy we experience in the midst of our grief is kind of like a sampler plate where we get to taste just a little bit what we're going to get to feast on later in the presence of Jesus Christ. I really believe what I said at the beginning of the message, that as we see what Peter sees, we'll say what Peter said with all of our hearts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, would you just say that out loud with me right now? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to just close with a quick word of application, and that's this. I just want to encourage us to remember, reflect, and rejoice. That's it. Remember, reflect, and rejoice want to encourage us to remember what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Don't forget. We all have stuff to do today. We're all going to be busy. Kim and I've got plenty on our plates after we leave church. But let's pray for the grace not to forget what God has done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Remember, 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 remember. And then as you remember, just reflect on the details of what God's done for you. Reflect on His great mercy in your life. Reflect on the inheritance that He's granted in you. Reflect on what He's doing in your life through the trials you're experiencing right now. None of this is theoretical. God is at work in our lives right now through the various trials of life. Reflect on this. Let the Lord speak to you. And as He gives you insight, then rejoice. Rejoice. Use Peter's words. Use Paul's words from Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Use the words of psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Find some words, but rejoice out loud in the Lord. Don't just keep it inside. Rejoice out loud. I know here in Minnesota, our rejoicing out loud isn't, you know, all that exuberant. That's okay. Exuberance, not necessary. Sincerity, that's necessary, right? Want sincere expression of, oh, Jesus, thank you i feel sometimes the most authentic powerful praise that's ever come out of my lips is just a simple thing in my heart that says oh thank you father thank you so much the outward how it looks is not important i'm just saying say it out loud remember reflect rejoice father i thank you so much for who you are i thank you so much for what you have done for your people I thank you so much for the power and permanence of the inheritance you've given us through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. I thank you so much for the security that we have as your children to know that you will bring us home and you will bring us to the day when we see Jesus face to face and come into the fullness of all these things. Right now we have to imagine them in our minds, but one day, Lord, imagination will give way to actual sight. And so I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and that you will do it. I pray, Father, for anybody here who is really going through hard and deep grief right now, or going through hard and and deep temptation and, and struggles with sin right now. I pray that by your word you would demonstrate your mercy to them, that you would give perspective to them, that you would give power and help to them to overcome until the day when their grief turns into rejoicing. Lord, I pray for anybody hearing this message who doesn't know you. I pray that they would see the beauty of what it looks like to know Jesus Christ. Oh, people have such horrible misunderstandings of what it means to be a Christian, but Lord, it is the most beautiful thing in the world to be a receiver of the great mercy of God through Jesus Christ. So I pray for them, Lord, open their eyes and open their hearts. Give them the willingness to bow the knees and say yes to your offer of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.